Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present. Brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, www.ihconvention.com. The sermon on today's podcast was preached over 40 years ago by R.G. Humble. He titles this wonderful message, Jesus Christ is Always the Same. forevermore. 
the keys of hell and death. Write the things which I have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Father, take the words that I've read this morning, interpret them, translate them to our hearts today, move beyond even the intellect as important as that is, until we can have them appropriated to our very beings, the innermost soul. This Saturday morning be very near, meet all the needs of this camp and this school, continue to help us all respond in prayer with our gifts that the work may go on. Bring us now to thy truth, the central truth of the word of God, the word of God itself. We ask that thou wilt do for us this morning what we need to have done for our souls, and we shall praise thee in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. In this passage that I have uh, read to you this morning, there is a, an allusion to the same thought, yesterday, today, and forever, where he said in verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. But Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. And when the Savior compares himself through John, the inspired writer, to the first and the last of those letters in that alphabet, he appropriated all the splendors that can be named by the whole language unto himself and unto his name. You know, we believe in God. We believe in that God is three persons in one nature. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, we believe in the Holy Trinity. And when they conversed, that is, God, the Father, the Son, and Spirit conversed, they said, let us make man in our image, saying, let, let, us, let us make him triune in nature. Let us make him body, soul, and spirit, and with the right of choice, and with a moral integrity and virtue that is of God, with the ability to reason and decide. And somewhere along in the passages of Holy Writ, he did say, come, let us reason together, having given men and endowed men with that ability to do so. He was a triune man coming from a triune God. God is one, and man is one. Yet the God that we know about expresses himself in three persons. He expresses himself as Father. He expresses himself as the only begotten Son. And he expresses himself as the eternal Spirit of the Father and of the Son. Now what I want to do this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit and whatever time I have is to speak to you about the Christ of yesterday, 
and the Christ of today and the Christ of tomorrow. Into that expansive yesterday, I would like to pile all the centuries prior to Mary giving birth to him in Bethlehem. And I'd like to put with all those centuries, all the eons and ages before human history began, and before even earthly history began, even before the creation of the universe, when it existed only in the mind of the holy God, when there was nothing of it but the blueprint in the omniscient mind of the infinite, back before all of the universe. And in that holy plan for the earth and for the universe, there came to bear in the mind of the infinite God one lowly and meek animal which was to be created. And that animal was selected to be the symbol of a sacrifice for sin in the eventuality that the highest of all the creations, mankind himself, with his free moral agency, would become rebellious and lose sight of God and lose the nature of God. And in that uh, holy moment, prehistorical, God's eternal Son stepped forward and said, I will become that lamb. And there and then he became the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And it is no wonder that he said, before Abraham was, I am. And it is no wonder that he gave the riddle, if he's David's son, then why doth David call him Lord? And the self-righteous Pharisees could not answer his riddle. But because of the Bible and because of what he has written here and because of what he inspired others to write, we have some insight into that. We know that before Abraham, we know that before Noah, we know that before Adam, he was the Christ of yesterday. John 1, 3 says all things were made by him. And without him was not anything created that was created. He was the Christ of creation. Those who think Bethlehem is his beginning are nearsighted. Nor did he begin with a holy conception. In the Old Testament, he appeared as the Jehovah of Revelation. Genesis 2-4 unfolded a more personal relationship with his people. The root meaning of the Lord God found in the fourth verse of chapter 2, Genesis, simply meant the eternal self-existent life, the fountain of foreverness, and the Jehovah located there of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ of the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, he also appeared in the Theophanies, Isaiah, Haggai, Jeremiah, Malachi, all spoke of the angel of the Lord. And then there are those times in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, where he was spoken of as the angel of the Lord. Moses heard him from the burning bush in Midian, and he saw him walking across Sinai. Abraham heard him in a call down in Ur, when he 
you said, Get thee out of thy country and away from thy kindred unto a land that I will sure show thee. He heard him in that call to go up to Moriah. And this day, Abraham and Isaac were going up that long mountain. Isaac said, Father, Father, here is the wood. Make the sacrifice. Here's the thing with which we're going to light the fire. But Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I don't know what Abraham thought he was talking about there. I don't know whether Abraham knew fully what he said. I don't know whether he clearly understood what he was saying. I don't know whether he thought about the time when Isaac was born, the first time that little, one little baby was placed in his hands and saw the promised son, the son of his old age, and thought, oh, how lamb-like he is, and thought now as we approach this mountain where the life is to be taken of that little lamb, now grown almost into manhood, if not altogether manhood, still thought of himself as a lamb and saying, somehow I don't understand, but God will keep his promise. And the lamb that he promised in the person of Isaac, he knows how to keep. I lodge my faith in him. Or perhaps somehow he had a little more insight into it and understood though, all, through all of the difficulties of understanding that somewhere out yonder in the lofty prophecies there would come a day when the eternal Lamb would come not from his loins, nor from Sarah, but come from the heavenlies, come from the infinite loins of a God that somewhere yonder in the heaven, the only begotten Son, and he would make his way down to the affairs of men and down to the body of a man and somewhere find himself an altar, find himself a place to stretch himself upon an altar and there become the eternal sacrifice for the sins of mankind. But at any rate, he said, my son, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. And there that day on top of that mountain, it took a ram innocent and wild to perfect the picture that Isaac could go free. But I like what I saw Abraham doing a little while after that with his chisel and hammer in hand. He sets about in, an, in a rock on top of that mountain to carve the words, J. And he went on through them very carefully as he carved them in the stone. J-E-H-O-V-V-A-H hyphen J-I-R taking his time. E-H and one chance is to come that day or any other day. Old man, what are you doing carving in a rock on this mountain? Well, I'm carving that God will provide, and God does provide, and God provides himself a lamb, Jehovah Jireh. The prophets wrote his name, they wrote about.
about his name. They wrote about his nature. They wrote about his birth. They wrote about his sufferings. They wrote about his sacrifice. They wrote about his glory. They wrote about his grace. They wrote about his government. You know, there's a strange thing going on currently throughout uh, the uh, theological world. And that is, there's a thought running through some of the liberal circles that in order to understand Old, Old Testament or Jewish writings, that the place to go to understand them is to current Jewish writers. And I say perish the thought. They missed in the first time what thinks... What do you think, by what reasoning can you think that they, they will now be able to inform us about those writings? The only Jewish writers that I like to read after are those that have accepted the Christ of God. I'm speaking about current Jewish writers and those who have received him and become knowledgeable that Christ is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And then those men have insights that are beautiful to read and beautiful to hear. The age of yesterday in Christ closed with the night. Some many thousands of years, some many thousands of years ago, or two thousand years ago, and many hundreds of years ago, it closed. And the fullness of time was coming. God, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, and made another law to redeem them which are under the law. And he became the Christ of today. The Christ of today begins. Those almost 2,000 years ago when Gabriel came to vir the Virgin Mary, to Nazareth, and said, Fear not, Mary, thou hast found favor with God. Thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son, and, thou, and he shall be great. And thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. And that little maiden looked up to the angel and said, how could it be? For she was a virgin. How can it be? And the angel said to her, the Holy Ghost had overshadowed thee. And that holy thing shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. And the Son of God of yesterday who walked in the furnace with the three Hebrew men became the Christ today in a conception in the loins of a little maiden. And that holy thing is today the Son of God. Thank God for his name. And he'll be the Christ of today until the rapture changes the age. And lifts the church out that he hath redeemed and made his bride. And when the bride is lifted up and the marriage supper of the Lamb is taking place, he shall be the Christ of tomorrow. But not yet. He's the Christ of today now. Oh, thank God for his 33 years on this earth to show us himself. Oblivious to hunger and the risk of starvation, he fixes a banquet with five loaves and two fishes for over 5,000 5, people and had 12 baskets left over. He had compassion on the multitudes of sheep as compassion, as a shepherd has compassion upon his sheep. And as a shepherd, he healed the sick. 
A nobleman fell to the ground in the presence of him one day, the Christ of today, and said, my daughter is dead. And a beggar tried to rub the darkness out of his eyes and said, Lord, that I might see. And a poor, afflicted woman pressed through that crowd and said, I've got to touch the hem of his garment. And the rigid rants and regulated Pharisees fussed about his unorthodox ways and said, this will never do. But he just kept on loving the outcasts and saving the sinners and healing the sick and raising the dead. And one day in the temple, he pointed out a man in that temple and said to him, stand forth in the midst and that he could do he came out and stood forth in the midst but the second command from the lips of the savior of today said stretch forth thine hand and that he had never been able to do not one time in his life for he had a withered arm and hand but when the Christ of today said, stretch forth thine hand, that man with a withered hand took a leap of faith. And stretched forth his withered hand. Oh, thank God for the Christ of today. He's still the Christ of today. And he knows our needs. Hallelujah, what a Savior who can take a poor lost sinner and set him free. I looked one day across the Kidron Valley to the summit of the Mount of Olives, and I thought I saw him younger, silhouetted against the sky, and I saw him with his head was bowed, and his form was lowly, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've gathered you together as a hen gathers a brood, but you would not. And he wept. It was an awful lament. But look now, he's seated on the back of an untamed big beast. They bring their clothes, they strew their coats and the palm branches in the way. And it's the same one who said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The son of man hath not where to lay his head. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is coming. And he did come to Jerusalem that day. But I think the holiest scene of all must have taken place in Gethsemane alone. When he went a stones farther than even his closest, most inner circle disciples said, a chance to go with him. So my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, being in agony. The agonies of every sin and sorrow pressed down upon him. All of them, all of them through humanity, all of them in the yesterdays, all of them in the today, and all in the tomorrow. And he prayed alone, and he sweat as it were great drops of blood, and said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this human cup pass from me, the cross. 
pass, this cup pass. But it's not, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. For you see, friends, he is the Christ. He is the Lamb whose blood, blood is shed before the foundation of the world. What love there must have been when he stretched himself upon that cross and they put the nails in his hands and his feet. That love is powerful. From the cry of John the Baptist down to the very moment of the cross, he never showed us anything but perfect love. He never showed us anything but how great his love was. He lived holy. He lived righteously. There was no sin in him. His life was impeccable. And at all points, he was tempted, yet without sin. And now he was to allow, allow himself with a decisive death and sufferings indescribable be the sufficient sacrifice of a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. His sufferings were indescribable. The nails, the scourgings, the spittle, the hateful mockery. Yet he was suffering for sin. Scripture says he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you came to this hilltop sometime during this week, as a born-again Christian, as a saved individual, traveling the highway that leads to heaven, you're saved by the blood. You're not saved because of any goodness. You're not saved because of the way you're dressed. Or the way, and, and you're not saved because of some, something you've done. You're saved by the blood. And when you're leaving this world, you're not going to be half as concerned about a lot of things that have taken your attention now. When you're leaving this world, if you split uh, the eastern sky and look through that hole that he makes and go into eternal, eternal bliss, it'll be because of the blood and it'll be because of the sacrifice. It'll be because of the mercy of the Lamb and no other, for no other reason. His soul was an offering for sin. He said, Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that crowd didn't know what he was doing. That crowd had no idea what was happening. They had very little living in it in rate. But he was paving a way for this old demon-possessed world with its hate and its hell and its sin and its wickedness. He was paving a way that would lead us up out of our sins and out of our out of our uh, the world in the sense of being worldly, leading us up to a place of, of pardon and a place of purity and a place that one day is going to be eternal with. He paved the way to the city. He paved the way. You see, they didn't know what he was doing. But what he was doing was he was dealing with sin and he was dealing with an old law that there might be a new way and a new law. And that way is love. And when I left that cross, when he came, when he left that cross, he went down. He left that cross right after he said it is finished. And Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He left that cross. And when he left that cross, the personal Christ went down to the very door of paradise. And he stood there before that door of paradise in Hades. And the old tempter of the saints came out and said, what do you want? And the Lord, fresh from the cross, said, Mr. Devil, I've come for the keys. 
I have come for the keys. Satan must have said, by what authority do you come? He said, by the, the authority of the Holy Father and the authority of a cross, an old rugged cross stained with blood so divine. And Satan must have said, what evidence do you have to bring with you that you're the one that they, they, what they told about in the law of the prophets? And he produced the evidence. He had taken the evidence with him from that cross, that other cross, where a poor, benighted, hell-bound murderer and thief said in his dying, gasping moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said, today, I'll take you with me to paradise. And Mr. Satan, here he is. Just a little while ago, he was in your camp. He followed your orders, but I saved him and brought him along. Now just go ahead and hand over the keys. And Satan looked into the heart of that murderer that had followed his every whim and that thief and found it was a new one. And there was nothing to be done but to hand over the keys. For Christ said, I have the keys to death and hell and the grave. There's a little picture. I don't know which one of my brethren here spoke just momentarily about it sometime during this camp meeting. I don't know which one, but there's a little picture that took place, an event, while the Lord was in his ministry up on a mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration because of what took place that day. And whatever had been happening down there in that place of the waiting of the righteous dead, it seems to me that it must have been all a, a glow and a blaze down there ever since he came and was born. For they sent up some representatives out of paradise to be there and appear. And especially did they send them when they heard Peter say, let's build three tabernacles here and stay. Their chief interest is that the one who promised and in whose faith they had lived and died and placed all their confidence would not stop in route, but would go all the way. And they spoke of his decease. I don't know what they spoke. The Bible doesn't tell us what they said. I would like to have heard the conversation. Perhaps one of them spoke and said, uh, Abraham said to remind you about the ram. And Isaiah said to tell you about the 53rd chapter, to remind you of the 53rd chapter. And Job said, to remind you that his Redeemer liveth. And there they were, down there, reading with all these promissory notes that someday he would come 
And someday he would pay the price and release them. So he took the keys and unlocked the door and said, come on now, children. It's time to go home. We're going home. And a horde of people with their garments having been washed, even from that old age, in the blood, not of bulls and goats, but in the blood of the Lamb, came streaming out, and they followed him up. And some of them, when they got up near the new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem city, said, Savior, since we're going by the old city, would it be all right if we stopped by and visited around a while and looked around here just a little bit? Well, he said, I think that would be all right. You say, I didn't see that in the Bible. Well, that's because you just, you just don't read between the lines. In fact, he said, we'll just take a little while here because there's a couple of things I've got to do. And while that great crowd waited and some of them appeared in the streets of Jerusalem, he went over to the tomb and said to his earthly body, it's time now to get up. And the stone went rolling away. And he got up and he appeared too on the way to Emmaus and to the women and to the disciples. And a little while he went back to that crowd and said, all right, children, it's time to go on now. We'll go home. And he picked up his crowd again. And I could see them streaming on toward the city. Not of the old Jerusalem, but of the new Jerusalem. And when they got up there to the city, they began to chant, Lift up your gates, your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. But the gatekeepers waited and tarried and said, But who is this King of glory? And that great crowd out of paradise said, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now lift him up. And the gates were lifted up and they went streaming in. And I can't see it all. But as he went to the throne, the father said, Son, job well done. Come here now and sit at my right hand. And could I tell you tonight, today, that he's still there? The Christ of today is still there, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He doesn't want us to go down shivering and down afraid and slipping off the edge of the precipice and going back and failing God. He's there praying for us. He's at the right hand of the infinite God. He isn't interested in our defeat. He's interested in our demise. He's interested in our victory. And he's provided the grace to take us through. Oh, Lord, the Christ of today. I didn't have it in the sermon, but I feel like with Isaiah, his name is wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. awaited on Olivet, this same Jesus is coming back again. 
And while he's the very same one that went up, there will be some contrast, if I understand scripture. So if you're ready, when the trumpet sounds so loud as to wake up the dead, don't be surprised if John's vision of him as the Ancient of Days proves to be his look in that hour, his head and his hair as white and fine as wool and white as snow, his eyes as a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as though they'd been burned in a furnace, his voice as a sound of many waters, his countenance as clear as the sun. And after seeing that vision, John wondered. The fine Dutch people out in Pennsylvania, God bless them, I love them very much. I came here from God's Bible School from them. They have a statement that they make that I think best fits the way I feel right now with John. When something amazes them, they say, it wonders me. And John wondered when he saw him and fell down at his feet as dead. Some people proclaim what they're going to do when they get to the city. They're going to go see Aunt Susie or Uncle John or all the other things they're going to do or hurry over to see their poor little cabin in the corner of Glory Bay. Brethren, sisters, if we make it, don't get any preconceived notions. John just got a vision of him and fell at his feet as though he were dead. But the Savior came over and laid his right hand on him. Now that old Patmos, Patmos said, Fear not, John. Don't worry about just what you've seen. I do look a little bit different from when I was here in the flesh. But look here. The only wounds I know about from this old sin curse, hell hurting world that are going to get into the city are the wounds in him. He's going to heal all of ours. But his hands, he laid his, hand, his hands upon him right hand on him. Fear not, I'm the first. I'm the one you saw. I'm the same Jesus, but I'm also the last. He, I'm he that liveth yesterday. I'm he that was dead, Calvary. But look, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and hell and the grave. Thank God for this immutable Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. I think one of those most uh, amazing, thrilling, and wonder verses of the, of the book of Revelation finds itself are verses that find itself in chapter 5. John again was looking into those unspeakable things. And he saw the opening of the books and the breaking of the seals. John said a strong angel, angel was lamenting or crying or weeping. Who is worthy to open 
break these seals. And they went out to discover somebody worthy. And the angels flitted across all the universes into the yesterdays, into the todays, because the Bible says, no man in heaven, nor in earth, that is alive, nor under the earth, that is the deceased, was able even to look on the book, let alone open it. And John saw it so clearly, and he heard the angel lamenting, and there seemed to be the cry and acting in heaven. Who is worthy to open these books and break the seal? And John said, I was moved so much in this great view and vision that I wept uncontrollably. And then I beheld, and there stood a lamb, as if it had been a slain, unmistakable evidence that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he came and opened the books and broke the seals. I remember the first time I ever had heard anybody from a pulpit not preach what I'm preaching here at all, but I heard anybody quote that was right from this platform when I was a student at God's Bible School. And when that man said that he came and opened the books, the book of life, and broke the seals of sin forever, he opened a way for every one of us to go to the city. Thank God for it. I think I feel again like Isaiah. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? And the dialogue went on. I that speak in righteousness and mighty to save. But Isaiah said, Where, Why then art thou red in thine apparel? And thy garments stained with the blood of the grave. Because I have trodden the winepress of God's wrath alone, and there was no man to stand with me. Therefore, with mine own arm, Therefore, with mine own arm, majestic, mighty, powerful arm, I broke the seals and opened the books. I reached down out of heaven and scooped out a poor, dying, lost sinner, stood him on his hind feet and said, Now, son, you're mine. And I'll provide the grace, and I'll provide the glory, and I'll provide the power, and I'll provide the purity, and I'll provide the holiness, and I'll provide the help to take you all the way through. And when you get oppressed, and when you get to the place where you don't think you can make another step, watch closely. I'll not be so far ahead, but what I'll beckon back to you to come on and keep on coming. I feel like the day of the little wave offering.
from my heart today. I'm glad for the Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. His name is wonderful. His name is Counselor. His name is Mighty God. His name is their everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Stand to your feet. Oh, Christ of God. Father, we thank you today for that blessed, blessed, blessed Son. We thank you for the Lamb today. His garments were stained that are that we, we can have clean garments, white, white and clean. He got down into the dust and the dirt that, you, that, that we can be raised up unto his glory. Speak in our souls and keep us keeping on. Give us such a vision that we'll lay aside the nonsense of the old world with all of its, all of its pull and go all the way through. Keep this vision of the Christ fresh on our hearts and for all the people over this weekend until we can have a climax for this camp meeting that'll bring a little bit of heaven down and the glory, glory to our hearts. Now, Lord, there's somebody came into this meeting today with a sin burden. We pray that thou will be with them. There came somebody to these grounds that's been saved, but they're hungry for our holiness. Keep making them hungry and thirsty and help them to quickly come and get it met. And there's a poor, benighted, troubled mother, though not benighted in the sense of sin, but benighted because of the awful burden that they're bearing over lost, wayward loved ones and children and grandchildren, and they don't even know where they are today. I ask thee that thou would come down, O Immaculate Christ, sufficient Lord, and be about them as a pillar of strength and a cloud of glory while they're here to encourage them. And when they go back to their home and back to their burdens, help them to go back knowing that they've met God in this place. And knowing that they've got a fresh vision of the Son and the Lamb in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on.